0: to another episode of Neo Kobe Pizza, the only gaming podcast that floats in soup. My name is Mark B., and joining me today is no one, because this is going to be a different sort of episode from what we're used to. Normally, when I put together the podcast, the idea is to have two people sit down and discuss a specific topic, ruminate on various things, have side conversations, etc., until we get to a point where there's some degree of reasonable consensus, and we've discussed every possible topic from that idea that we've come up with. This time around, I wanted to actually create a sort of a recap episode that kind of discusses the the behind-the-scenes elements, opinions on things that we've discussed before, and just generally decomposes the process for those who might be interested in this sort of thing. If this isn't a thing that you're particularly interested in, that's perfectly fine. We'll see you back next week with a wonderful new guest. But for those who are interested in the -the behind-the-scenes aspects of what goes into making this podcast what it is, what hiccups we've seen along the way, and just generally updated opinions, give it a listen, and we'll see what you think. So the first thing I kind of want to talk about before going into the more in-depth, added or expanded opinions of topics that we've discussed in the past 20 episodes is the elements that have gone into making the podcast and the different changes that we've had to make over time in order to make the podcast work the way that it's intended to. This is also going to be kind of a point that might be interesting to those of you who are thinking about making your own podcasts, as you might be wondering what sort of tech we use, what's going on behind the scenes, things of that nature. So the first thing to note is that from a hardware perspective, this has been kind of a shit show behind the scenes for a while, unfortunately, due in no uncertain terms to the fact that I have had to cycle through multiple different microphones in order to get the sound that we have now. Starting originally with a headset that was acquired, and I'm going to be honest here, because it was touted as a PC gaming headset. That also had red LEDs on it because that's the aesthetic I'm going with for my personal computing rig. The downside of this particular headset was that the microphone was not really designed for clear communications, so the end result was the talking in a fishbowl scenario that many of you probably noticed in earlier podcasts before we eventually settle into something that at least sounds like I'm having a communication. Surprisingly enough, the equipment that I'm using now is actually just a $20 20 to $25 Plantronics headset, because Plantronics headsets are generally designed to be utilized for things like voice over IP communications and things where being able to understand the voice of the person speaking to you are at a premium. It's also worth noting that when you're using Skype as a recording tool, you have to specifically go in and fine-tune the settings because Skype has this stupid problem where it will attempt to normalize the audio when you are attempting to communicate. Here's the thing. It doesn't do this server side for the person who's listening to you. It does this client side by adjusting your microphone settings. What this means is that if you are attempting to record something, Skype is going to be consistently playing around with your microphone settings, shifting them up and down, up and down, up and down, so that you are going to end up with a very uneven-sounding recording, which many of you who've been listening since the beginning might have noticed was a problem for three or four episodes. I ended up having to manipulate that a bit on the software side of things, and while I could never get it 100% where I wanted to, for the most part, I feel like I managed to get that ironed out in the majority of the podcasts where this was an issue before, again... I eventually discovered that this was a problem and corrected it. Now, from a hardware-software perspective, for those who are wondering what tools are being used here, again, for my own personal recordings, I am using a $20 to $25 Plantronics headset that you can find on Amazon.com. For professional-quality recordings, you would probably want to utilize something that has actual audio in-and-out setups, but this is not necessarily meant to be the sort of top-end setup that you would expect from somebody who's making professional quality videos or professional quality recordings, like for a radio station or something of that nature. So for the purposes of recording for this podcast, this piece of equipment is generally fine for all of my needs. When I do the rare podcast that is recorded locally, as in, in the quote-unquote studio, I have been using a Yeti microphone, which... I haven't really had enough exposure with at this point to appropriately fine-tuned settings-wise. So for those who listened to the Souls podcast, you will almost certainly have noticed that there were some kinks that needed to be worked out, shall we say. That's something that I'm ultimately going to be working on the long term. And I may ultimately end up going with a scenario where I utilize multiple different microphones simultaneously. I don't know how that's going to work. We'll see. But at the end of the day... I feel like, at least for the purposes of capturing my own audio, the Yeti worked the way that I wanted it to. It's just a matter of fine-tuning its functionality so that I can get it to a point where it can record two people in the same room at the same audio level so that I don't have to perform extensive adjustments and things of that nature. From a software perspective, everything that I've been utilizing to fine-tune the podcasts is from the Sony library, so I have been utilizing sony's soundforge application to perform audio editing behind the scenes sony's acid music program to put together the podcasts and sony movie studio platinum in order to create the films that go up on youtube now it should be noted that when i say i've been using sony movie studio platinum i've basically just been doing stuff that you could do in windows movie maker so that's not a particularly big deal But the tool tends to work better than Windows Movie Maker does. So if you find that Windows Movie Maker is kind of a piece of shit that crashes if you're trying to do something that's longer than an hour, which is the problem that I ran into, I do recommend it. SoundForge, on the other hand, is fantastic for audio editing, as you might have noticed for many of the other podcasts where the other person's audio consistently matches up with my own or maybe has things edited out. You can perform a lot of really useful functions in the tool, including increasing somebody's audio without necessarily getting distortion on it, noise gating out, obvious background noise, like, for example, when your microphone is catching the audio coming from your headset, and more. So you can effectively edit what something sounds like in a way so that both speakers come across cleanly and clearly, without the need to have to constantly butcher things and chop things out. Finally, acid Music is worth investing in if you want to create a podcast that, while not necessarily professional sounding, sounds more professional than, you know, you just recording something with a bunch of different people on one program because it allows you to combine simultaneous audio streams in a way so that you can perform minute detail editing. For those who have listened, you might have noticed some minor audio cuts here and there where things seem like they might not have been immediately next to one another when they were said, and that's because this is still a learning process for me. But yes, I do use Acid Music in order to cut out a lot of the dead space in conversations cut out side conversations that may not necessarily be beneficial to the conversation, cut out audio hiccups like thumps or thuds or microphone scratches or things of that nature, and just generally try to minimize background noise, minimize dead spaces, and other such things. Now, when I say combine multiple audio streams, what I mean here is that I utilize a local recording tool called Audacity, which is used on both my machine and the machine of the person that I'm recording with to get two separate local audio files. This is something that I picked up from listening to Jim Sterling's podcast the Jimquisition. So, let us not think that this is, you know, something that I came up with entirely on my own. The best way that you can get good information is to borrow it from others. But it is worth noting that Really, any local audio recording tool is probably going to work out perfectly fine for your interests there. I just recommend Audacity because it's completely free of charge. So if you were interested in recording your own podcast where you utilize local audio, this is a tool that you can recommend to others that has no cost associated with it and is relatively easy to use. You just push the record button when you're ready to record. Choose the render audio option from the file menu when you are ready to put that audio out, or excuse me, the export audio option when you are ready to put that audio out into a format that is usable from a podcasting perspective, and then you render it however you want. In my case, I utilize waveform files because they retain the most overall audio integrity so that you can effectively create local recordings that can be blended together rather than having the problem of utilizing something like, say, Pamela on Skype where you're going to get obvious audio distortion if two people are talking through voice over IP. Since the sound is being digitally converted when it's being sent to the other person and there's going to be a certain degree of integrity loss, there's a whole discussion about how audio is sent and UDP conversations and things of that nature that I promise you're not interested in. But the point is, is that when you go and you listen to the podcasts, Created under the Die Hard Gamecast banner. You can hear the difference between what is recorded there and what is recorded here. That said, I do also record audio backups in Pamela, and there is a good reason for this. There was a point during the podcast's recording cycle where I recorded with someone, and because I assumed that the person I was recording with had more understanding of how the tools worked than they did, I just told them, well, just start recording and then send me the file when you're done. And I didn't think to check. Are they seeing the audio spikes that are indicative that show that Audacity is working properly? They were not, and they didn't know that was a thing that they needed to be seeing. So when they sent me the audio file, it was blank. Oops. So I now use Pamela as a backup recording option on the off chance that something gets screwed up during the initial recording. For those of you who are wondering, oh, what was that in one of the earlier episodes? No, that was like episode 18. No, I'm not kidding. You're consistently going to find that there are things that you are learning about the recording process and lessons that you have to take away. So for those who are aspiring podcasters, let that be a lesson to you. Always make sure that if you are asking the person that you are recording with to utilize tools that they are not familiar with, that you explain to them how the tools work so that something doesn't get messed up and it be all your fucking stupid fault. It's also worth noting here that If you are recording with somebody who is not a friend of yours, or if you are recording with somebody who is a collaborator who has opted to step in, who, you know, you don't have a lot of direct influence over, you kind of have to put up with whatever equipment that they bring to the table. But it is really worth it if you are recording with friends, coworkers, and things of that nature to impress upon them the value of getting a communications-friendly microphone. I say this because it is fairly obvious, if you listen to the first 20 episodes of the podcast, who amongst those I have recorded with have utilized headset-type microphones or microphones where vocal recording is a priority versus those who utilize alternative microphones in various capacities. Now, to be clear, the people who have the best overall sound set, uh, setups were people like you know Josh Moore who actually does semi-professional audio recording in his spare time. Whereas you could kind of tell from listening to the podcast I did with John Widrow that he was quite literally utilizing the microphone built into his laptop. It's not a dig at Mr. Widrow in any way, shape or form. And if he's listening, I, I do want to be clear. I'm not trying to be a dick. I'm just making it a point of noting that you may want to push on others to invest in equipment that will allow them to, record their audio more clearly, or failing that, just buy the damn thing for them. If that's not a thing that you are invested in doing, you may want to rely on the Pamela option, if only because, at that point, the fact that the audio quality doesn't necessarily sound top shelf is at least inherent in the Pamela application itself, and the way that it chooses to record audio, rather than because the audio that you're working with is not necessarily the best quality in general. So again, those are just some considerations to keep in mind. Do your best to see if you can impress upon the person that you are recording with to use a microphone that is of decent quality. Make sure that you have tools available, whether they be free or at cost, that will allow you to do some basic audio editing. And maybe consider having both people record their own local audio and blending it together in a separate tool so that you can get a better quality sound production than you would just by recording with something like a Pamela or some other sort of stream recorder. And also, if you're going to invest in a microphone, make sure that you invest in one that is designed for communications and not for PC gaming. Just a thought. With those thoughts having been expressed, let's dig a little deeper here and get into the meat of kind of discussing individual elements from the first 20 podcasts, additional thoughts I might have having been removed from those conversations a bit, and where we kind of sit now, again, some 20 weeks removed from the introduction of the podcast. Starting with a combination recap on episodes one and twenty, there's just a couple of points that I did want to get into regarding discussing the Persona situation as it extends right now. First and foremost, it's probably worth noting that despite the somewhat depressing news that Persona 5 would be pushed back in order to try and improve the overall quality of the game beyond the release that Japanese gamers saw that it's worth noting that the game as presented is doing fucking gangbusters in Japan at this point, which is basically awesome if you're somebody who's looking forward to the game. Persona 5 scored a 39 out of 40 in Famitsu, which, yeah, I know Famitsu is kind of a joke at this point, but still, 39 out of 40, that's not nothing. It was also not only the number one seller in Japan the week that it debuted with 265,000 copies on PlayStation 4 and the number two seller in Japan for the PlayStation 3 at 73,000 copies, but was also the best-selling game in the franchise for Atlas in Japan, period. Which, holy fucking shit. So it's fairly safe to say that the game that we are looking forward to May actually be one of those rare games that can pay off the hype that has been surrounding it pretty much since it was officially announced. It's also worth noting that Atlas of Japan, in various interviews, have indicated that there were actually some content cuts in the Japanese version of the game, but not for the reasons that we've discussed in previous podcasts, but rather just because the developers realized that these things weren't feasible for them to fit in. This includes an entire character arc. And this generally comes down to three things. Uh, There were some cuts that were done for thematic reasons, such as some Personas were cut out because they didn't match the overall theme the developers were going for. There were some general artistic decisions, such as there were changes made from the protagonist's living scenario. He was originally going to be living with the lead prosecutor on the case against him, but was ultimately changed over to living on his own. I'm, I'm guessing just because they felt artistically it wasn't very interesting to kind of redo what Persona 4 had done. And in some cases, for game length concerns, again, the, the cutting of the character arc was done because the game, as they saw it in a general run-through, was topping out at over 80 hours. Considering that the length of Persona 4 for some people can be between 80 to 100 hours, holy shit. I mean, I'm going to be honest here. If you're getting to a point where you're like, you know what, maybe this game is just too damn long, I'll, I'll nod and go along with that, sure, okay. Beyond that... I don't really have a lot to say about this. We, we're we all looking forward to Persona 5 if you are somebody who is a fan of the Persona franchise. It may be worthwhile eventually to sit down and have a discussion on the fact that there there is a significant divide in the Atlas community as it relates to how people perceive the modern Persona games versus the older Persona games, as well as how people in the SMT community in general perceive the Persona franchise specifically. But... That's probably not going to be for a little bit, just because I don't want this to turn into Neo-Kobe Persona over here. You know, let's give it a little bit of space before we come back to that, probably closer to the launch of Persona 5, I would expect. Moving on to Episode 2, the, the only real topic I kind of want to get into here, as there are a few things worth considering outside of the obvious audio issues in that particular podcast, are... Things that have come out relating to the Souls franchise without directly being a part of the franchise, or at least, like, the things that we discussed as such. First off, I want to touch briefly on the NIO demo that was released by Tecmo Koei, or excuse me, the two demos that were released by Tecmo Koei. I've played them, I've experienced them, and I had intended to write something on them before, unfortunately, real life took me out of that particular situation, But it is really worth noting here that as someone who is a fan of the Souls series for reasons other than the insane difficulty that they are purported to have, I was not especially impressed with either of the alpha demos. The original alpha demo in particular I found was artistically uninteresting to me personally, and I just did not care for the aesthetics of the experience one way or the other. It was fine in the way that one would expect this sort of thing to be fine, but it very much just felt like Tecmo Kelly looked at Dark Souls, looked at Ninja Gaiden, held the boxes up side by side, and said, yeah, we can do this. And that's fine, it's just not a thing that's going to evoke the same sort of response from me as a person, because I'm looking for that aesthetic, I'm looking for that artistically interesting world, universe, etc., and I just don't feel like Nioh had that in the alpha demo which, again, is not a surprise and should not be a surprise. The game is only in its alpha stage at this point. But, considering the game is only a couple of months from coming out as of this point, in retrospect, I sort of feel like at least the second alpha demo should have shown a bit more artistic inclination and artistic interest, such that it showed a product closer to its final stages of completion. To my mind, this unfortunately was not the case, and from what little time I invested in... The second alpha demo, I just didn't see anything that hooked me. Now, I should note that the second alpha demo did showcase some significant modifications to the way difficulty was handled in the game, such that it didn't feel like the sheer difficulty was the significant motivator behind developing the game, which is good. But by the same token, I I still just wasn't invested in it. This is probably a game, it should be noted, that I will at least rent, if not purchase outright, and that I will definitely play and commit time to, but it it doesn't feel like the sort of game that demands that you complete it like a Souls game does, and maybe you think differently, and that's perfectly fine. That's going to be a game that's going to interest some people for other than others, but I don't think it's going to be the kind of genre-cementing hit that a lot of people might hope it would be. At best, I feel like it's going to be the sort of thing that is going to scratch that itch for those who love Souls games until From Software either announces a Bloodborne 2 or a Dark Souls 4. But for everybody else, I kind of feel like it's going to be one of those outlier sort of games like a God Eater to Monster Hunter where it sort of just occupies the need and that's it. And even if you like it, you don't like it as much as the core series that you came in from. The second thing I want to talk about briefly is the Ashes of Ariandel DLC which came out for Dark Souls 3 which is the first of several component pieces that are supposed to be released because for those out there in the world who have made the argument that Dark Souls 2 is, you know, a good to great game and have argued that they like it better than some of the other games in the franchise I just want to take a moment to point out the differences in the design aesthetic between the Ashes of Ariandel DLC versus the Dark Souls 2 DLCs that have come before. The first thing that's worth noting here is that Ashes of Ariandel kind of exists as its own thing. In Dark Souls 2's DLC, you got the distinct impression that the DLC was meant to significantly modify the world. And if you have actually sat down and devoted any time to the Scholar of the First Sin re-release of Dark Souls 2, you can kind of sort of clearly see that there is a distinct attempt made to make that DLC meaningful within the world itself, so that you you almost feel like there's a varied experience there. Dark Souls 3's Ashes of Ariandel, on the other hand, just kind of exists as a, a thing that you can add to the game. It doesn't meaningfully impact the experience in any way. And if you don't download it, it it doesn't necessarily feel like you're missing out on some key point of information. It just exists as an interesting side story that's worth seeing and is worth experiencing. But if you miss it, if you don't want to download DLC, what have you, you're not being robbed of anything from having not experienced it. I don't necessarily have an opinion on which is a better way of doing things. So if you are the sort of person who prefers one method over the other you know, go nuts, I just thought that that was an interesting aesthetic, considering that this is quite clearly how Bloodborne's DLC and the original Dark Souls DLC was handled. I think that this is a decidedly Miyazaki choice, and I tend to prefer it myself, but, you know, to each their own. If you don't, that's totally fine. So, you know, take from that what you will. The other thing I kind of want to point out, though, is that One thing that kind of becomes apparent if you spend time with the Dark Souls 2 DLC is that the game generally tends to reuse its assets over the course of its DLC. For example, you will see reused boss assets. There was a boss that was reskinned for the purposes of appearing in one of the DLC packages, and then a boss that appears in one DLC package appears again in two different versions later on, which I, I think is. Frustrating to me personally because it just kind of says that the content creators weren't that invested in creating the DLC. Like, they were just creating DLC for the sake of creating DLC, and not because they had anything interesting to say with it. Ashes of Ariandel not only tells a really interesting story that ties back into the world of Dark Souls with the painted world of Aramaeus versus the painted world of Ariandel, but also contains mostly unique and interesting content. So if you go into the world of Ashes of Ariandel, you can clearly see that there is a whole new aesthetic and a whole new design concept to it with the frozen world and the corruption that is spread throughout the world as a result of the fading and fraying of the painting. And it also kind of holds true to the concept that Dark Souls created where the DLC bosses are far and away more punishing than the bosses that you see in the core game. For those who played the original Dark Souls, most people generally tend to agree that Manus, the final boss from that particular DLC package, was the hardest boss created for Dark Souls. And I would argue that the boss of Ashes of Ariandel, the true final boss, is going to be one of those bosses that most people are going to agree is the toughest of the lot, except possibly for the Nameless King who I still think definitely has at least some elements that that give him a leg up in the competition. I haven't gone back and revisited The Nameless King in comparison to make an informed determination as to which one is better or worse than the other, for reference purposes. But I do want to point out, if you are the sort of person who loves those excessively challenging final bosses, this is going to be a DLC package that is great for you. That said... The other boss that exists, which is kind of a sub-boss that you can completely bypass and don't even have to see if you don't want to, is not as interesting comparatively. It's just a dude who also happens to have a giant wolf with him, and it it kind of draws comparisons to the Sif battle from Dark Souls 1, except with a dude there as well. It's fine, it's just not especially challenging, and any fears that I had about the battle going in were immediately offset by the fact that I wrecked both of them on my first try. So it's, it's probably not necessarily going to be the sort of battle that's going to be as concerning as the battles in Artorias of the Abyss, which, for those who haven't played that, literally started out with a boss battle, and featured a total of four boss battles across the entirety of the DLC, most of which were quite challenging. But it is interesting to note that there there is that battle there, and it kind of feels like because there's a season pass and because there are other planned DLC packages, that they might be staggering the difficulty a bit over the individual packages so that you, you get something that feels a bit more even instead of just one big challenge after the next. The final thing I want to mention is that content creator H Guy, whose videos I tend to enjoy a bit, uh, has created a fairly lengthy video decomposing why he feels that Bloodborne is a work of genius and basically the best game in the franchise, pound for pound. And, I mean, you know what? I don't agree. And that's fine. I could probably spend 10 or 15 minutes explaining why I don't agree, but here is a short-form summary of my opinion on this. I appreciate it when videos are made in a way that people whose opinions I respect don't agree with my opinions, because it's an interesting way for me to challenge my worldview and think, you know what, am I wrong about this? But having watched the video twice, seriously, it's an hour and a half long and I've watched it twice, I don't know what the fuck's wrong with me, I've kind of come to the conclusion that I still disagree with the core thesis of it, largely because the core thesis of the video is that if you come into Bloodborne as your first exposure to the Souls franchise, you will learn the correct way to play the games, which will in turn help you in getting through the Souls games. And while I can kind of sort of see the point there, speaking as somebody who has played through all of the games at this point, I didn't learn a damn thing from playing through Bloodborne. I just went at the game with the Hunter's Axe and then Ludwig's Holy Blade. I blitzed the shit out of every enemy that I fought by stun locking them to death. And I went into Dark Souls 3 utilizing a sword and shield and the same general evasive tactics that I had learned. And in general, most of the learning that I did came from playing through Dark Souls and figuring out what worked and what didn't. It's possible that somebody coming into the series from Bloodborne might be able to take lessons they learned from Bloodborne and apply them to the Souls series overall. Don't get me wrong, it's just that I don't think that Bloodborne inherently teaches you the best way to play, especially because in the Souls franchise in particular, there are a lot more build options available that can dramatically impact the way that you play. For example, a caster-type character, which is something that's not even really an option in Bloodborne, can play completely differently from an agility build or a tanking build. And that's not nothing. To me, Bloodborne is designed with a very specific mechanical structure in mind, and it's not one that I necessarily think is the best, but I can understand at least from a narrative conceit why this would be a thing that the creators would do. Whereas Dark Souls is a game that's more about rewarding execution and research and diversification. So the player who invests the most time into their build will generally have a more fruitful time. And it's just different experiences for different folks. You can take the lessons that you learned from Bloodborne, and you can use those in the Souls games to great effect if that's the thing that you want to do. But if you want to play as a heavier character, or you want to play as a magic using character, or whatever, that is an entirely viable path. And I don't personally think that The S.H.I.E.L.D. is the beginning and end of all of the problems in the Souls franchise. And I don't think Miyazaki thinks that way either, because I think that if he did, he would have removed the S.H.I.E.L.D. from Dark Souls 3. Just a thought. On the other hand, Mr. Bomber Guy has also made the observation that he eventually wants to make a video on Vampire the Masquerade Bloodlines as a game that he enjoys and might want to revisit to see if he thinks there are problems now years removed from the fact. And I'm a fan of that game, so, you know... What are you going to do? I still recommend checking out his videos, even if I don't agree with his opinions on Monster Hunter or Kingsfield. But, whatever. You do you, bro. You do you. Moving on to episode three, I I really only have one observation I want to make here, and it is this. Mr. Alex Lucard, who listeners will remember from episode 18, made casual mention about the fact that he, at one point or another, wanted to have a discussion uh, with Guy, about how the French version of Heavy Rain was way more accurate and way more understandable and had way less plot holes, I guess, than the English version, which I thought was funny, because I ended up having to explain to him that he does not play games in French, which he said in the podcast. So I don't, that would have been a particularly fruitful conversation. In any case, he's also predominantly indicated that he is primarily a Nintendo gamer, so I don't even know if he's ever played Heavy Rain, as that was not a thing that really came up. Moving on. Going back to the Episode 4 discussion with Mr. Jay Widrow and DLC practices, I I do want to note that my opinion has evolved a bit on the Overwatch situation due entirely to their handling of the two... DLC-based special events that they have performed in the time period since the game's launch. For those who are players of Overwatch, you will immediately be aware of what I'm talking about, but for those who do not play the game regularly, Blizzard created two themed events based around being able to acquire aesthetic items for your characters in a summer games-based DLC event and a Halloween-based DLC event. In both cases, the general rules were the same. If you consistently leveled up and opened up loot crates during this time period, you would be able to potentially get unique decorative items, be they sprays, costumes, emotes, whatever, themed after the 2016 Summer Games, or Halloween, depending upon the time period that you did this. You could also purchase boxes, which would give you, obviously, a better chance of getting these aesthetic items. This is decidedly some cell phone-based freemium content bullshit, and a lot of people were not particularly happy with the way that this was handled because it kind of sort of pointed out that Blizzard is absolutely going to be utilizing these sorts of DLC-based events to garner additional money behind the scenes for the Overwatch product, even though you've already paid for it. Now, to Blizzard's credit, they did learn a valuable lesson from the Summer Games package, which did not allow you to acquire aesthetic items in any way, shape, or form beyond what was presented from the boxes. So your options were play like a crazy person, buy boxes, or miss out on aesthetic stuff that you actually wanted, which was frustrating. The Halloween event changed this around a bit by actively allowing players to pay in-game currency for these items, which meant that if you were somebody who had played a lot and had a lot of in-game currency stored up, you could actually purchase specific aesthetic items that you might want. That said, the Halloween items were three times the price of your regular aesthetic items, which, again, kind of leans into the idea that they were still trying to encourage you to pay money for boxes, but at least that option was there, even if it wasn't implemented as well as it could have been. Overall, in the end, I do feel frustrated with the way that Blizzard is quite clearly choosing to do specific things with this product, but this kind of rolls up into a general frustration that I will get to in a couple of minutes, so just keep that in mind for right now. Moving on to Episode 6, the only thing I really want to touch on here is that Niantic has begun to see a mass player exodus from Pokemon Go in the past few months after their initial huge spike of players investing in the game, essentially due to the fact that they released the game in a fairly shallow state and then didn't get around to adding in new features and functionality, leaving the product to stagnate over time as some features were ultimately removed because they didn't work the way that Niantic assumed that they would. And this kind of shows a larger problem where the mobile games that Nintendo is behind and is releasing, Mitomo being another example of this, generally end up showcasing some really good ideas about how to initially hook players, but then ultimately show that they don't have any good ideas of how to keep them there. Now, to be clear, lots of mobile games have these sorts of growing pains, and this is certainly not anything that's unique or exclusive to Nintendo's properties. Those who have played games like Grand Blue Fantasy, Brave Frontier, etc. will almost certainly know what I'm talking about. But it is worth noting that this is a thing that is happening, and this is a thing that has definitely shown up as being a problem in both of the Nintendo-backed mobile properties that exist at this point. So it will be interesting to see, as Nintendo continues to expand into the mobile marketplace, if they address this, how they address this, and... In a more narrow sense, what Niantic can do at this point to improve the present situation regarding Pokemon Go, hopefully before the game stagnates to a point from which there is no recovery. Right now, I don't think that's necessarily an option, considering that the recent release of Sun and Moon did gangbusters, but it is definitely something that Niantic is going to want to consider in the coming months while that hype for Pokemon is still out there in the front and center before they're at a point where no amount of hype that they're going to get out into the world is going to make a significant impact. Moving on to episode 8, I do want to make a brief point regarding the whole eSports thing that was touched on during the Switch discussion with Aaron, where Nintendo kind of positioned Splatoon as an eSports-ready title in their preview video. And, And I just... I believe I said this during the Switch podcast but in case i didn't fuck off i also really want to i also really want to get into blizzard's mentality here based on two recent anecdotes that come up regarding blizzard's general overall opinion towards making their business model one that is designed around esports above and beyond all else the first is that at the recent blizzcon this year Blizzard actively went out of their way to create an environment where all of their games, just about, were presented from a competitive esports-based perspective. And when I say just about all of them, what I mean by that is the only one that seemed to have been left off the table was Diablo. Heroes of the Storm, Overwatch, and StarCraft II were all presented in a competitive fashion, which at least makes a certain amount of sense, since those are games that are designed with a competitive edge around them, so if you're going to market them as esports, that's not the worst thing. But, Blizzard also presented competitive WoW play, which is just the weirdest thing I have heard in the world of gaming in a while. Not that I don't think that you can't have PvP or even competitive elements to the WoW experience, PvP is clearly a big deal, or at least was clearly a big deal in WoW at various points during its development cycle. I just don't see why you would even begin to try to market that as anything even remotely in the vein of an esports-type environment. Like, it just, it just seems stupid to me, personally. And again, maybe that's just me. Maybe that's just a problem that I have, where I don't get where they're going with this because esports is not necessarily a big part of my day-to-day existence, but it's just very weird to me that of all of the games that are under their banner that are kind of ready-made for esports, and of all of the genres that exist in general that are ready-made for esports, one of the things that Blizzard would choose to highlight as a competitive property during this esports push is an MMORPG, where rating and the single-player aspects of it are going to be the biggest focal point for many. It is what it is, though. That said, the second thing I want to kind of point out here is that in the intervening time period between this podcast and today's episode, Blizzard sent me a survey where they asked a series of questions that were quite pointedly geared toward their esports presence. Now, again... As I've said, I am not the first person to ask esports-related questions to, because while I'm interested in esports from a gaming history sort of perspective, these are not things I generally invest a lot of time in as a fan, as a player, as a spectator. And I sort of feel like that's because, at least partially... A lot of the people presenting these kinds of things are presenting them in a way that is very insular. It is meant to appeal to people who are already inside of the community. The most investment I have had in an esports-related concept was a fighting game tournament appearing on ESPN, which I thought was interesting and I was at least partially invested in. Outside of that, it it just feels like a lot of these companies are looking to hook their fans who are interested in esports and aren't really interested in trying to make these properties appeal to people on the outside, either appealing to people who are not necessarily fans of their properties, but could be, or people who are fans of their properties, but are not necessarily invested in the esports aspect of things. I mention all of this because Blizzard's survey did nothing to, in any way, dissuade me from holding this belief. The survey, again, was structured mostly around the idea of asking questions about my perspective of Blizzard's attempt at creating esports-ready properties. And a lot of it was very much, you know, have you played League of Legends? Have you played Heroes of the Storm? Have you played StarCraft II? Have you played this? Have you played this? Have you played this? But then broke down to, are you invested in our esports? What do you think of the idea that we are posting up DLC, where the profits from those DLC go toward funding our esports endeavors? That sort of thing. And inevitably, my answers to those questions were, I'm not very invested in esports, nothing that you guys have done have invested me in esports, and I haven't seen anything from the esports side of things that seems like it was geared towards generating interest in me as a player. And Blizzard's response to that in the survey was, you don't qualify to answer these questions. So essentially, what Blizzard's survey is saying is, if you are not already interested in our esports properties, we don't care what you think about our esports properties. Which seems like incredibly stupid circular logic, and not the sort of thought process that a company who is trying to actually seriously become an esports property pusher should be invested in. Blizzard is essentially saying, unless you already care about our eSports, we don't care what you think about our eSports. And all due respect intended, you're not going to beat League of Legends with that mentality. You're not going to get people to invest in Overwatch or StarCraft Two if all you are interested in doing is preaching to the choir. Obviously, people who are already invested in your eSports are going to have an opinion about that but those people are already invested in your eSports. You shouldn't be interested in the small group of people who are already invested in your eSports because those people have already shown that they are invested. It's probably worth asking somebody who has paid money for all of your properties except for WoW and Hearthstone, hey, you own like four or five of our games, why don't you watch our eSports and see what they say? If that person just says, I'll never be interested in esports, I don't give a shit, sure, don't listen to that guy, maybe. But if somebody comes in and says, I wish that the esports were more like this, or I wish that there was this kind of investment level, or what have you, or at least shows that they might be willing to get into your particular brand of esports, listen to that person. At least give their ideas a chance. If their ideas are infeasible, or they're just dumb, or what have you, then fine, But don't tell that person, before they're even finished answering your questions, yeah, we don't really care about your opinion. So, if I had any degree of optimism for Blizzard ultimately being successful in their attempt to make their properties esports-ready, I don't anymore. And I would expect that, based on this degree of preaching to the choir, circle-jerking, that they are engaging in at the moment, that you should not be surprised if Blizzard ultimately cannot overtake games like League of Legends in the esports circles for at least the next couple of years, until they get their collective heads out of their collective asses. Just saying. Moving on to episode 11, I do briefly want to touch on the fact that No Man's Sky has finally released the patch that is being considered by many to be one that ultimately gets the game closer to what it was supposed to be at launch which adds in the ability to among other things build your own individual stations take on an entire style of play that just lets you craft in an environment and even gives you individual tools that simplify the mining and collecting processes I think this is interesting and I'm definitely glad that they have put this into place as well as putting into place a more challenging survival-based mode that will appeal to players who thought that the game was too easy in its current in its current configuration. But I've seen a lot of discussions kind of coming up as to whether this might be too little or too late for No Man's Sky as a property. I don't really want to get too involved here on the off chance that I might be able to have a full podcast on this conversation, but my mentality here is that a lot of games in the marketplace have kind of already shown that they can weather initial player disappointment so long as the money is there to support the property and eventually come out the other side as winners. Destiny weathered a lot of initial player disappointment and lack of engagement to eventually become quite a successful property overall, especially once the Taken King came out. Diablo 3 weathered auction house controversies to eventually become one of Blizzard's more successful investments long-term. And, of course, Final Fantasy XIV weathered debuting as one of the most uninteresting and poorly executed MMOs in recent memory to become, right now, one of the most successful in the marketplace at the moment because the developers were willing to invest that time, were willing to put in that Mia culpa and we're willing to make the games into what players expected them to be and wanted them to be. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that No Man's Sky will be able to do this, but let's also bear in mind, No Man's Sky is still a conversation that we are having. Even now, three, four months after its initial debut, that's important. We are still talking about whether or not No Man's Sky was a huge success or a gigantic failure. We are still talking about critical opinions on this. I am consistently seeing people post videos and images and whatnot on social media about No Man's Sky whether it be positive or negative and that is something that is worth keeping in mind. No Man's Sky is still a discussion topic. Video game players in a lot of respects are willing to forgive a lot of missteps by a developer so long as the final product ends up being the thing that they had wanted and hoped for in the first place. Again, look at Destiny, a game that sold reasonably well and ended up becoming a huge success because Bungie listened and did what players ultimately wanted them to do. But it's also worth noting, Destiny stayed in the conversation a lot longer than people expected. It wasn't a game like Titanfall that sold a bunch and then immediately was just rife with nobody fucking talking about it. Games that consistently have people discussing them, debating them, getting into extensive discussions about how they succeeded and how they failed for months and months and months, ultimately have that room to adjust themselves. And while I don't know if No Man's Sky will ever fully get the stink off of itself of it's a first couple of months, for better or for worse, I do think there is definitely room for the property for Hello Games and for everything involved with it to recover and ultimately become at least a game people are happy owning if not necessarily the exact game people wanted or were promised. Maybe I'm wrong. I would certainly be willing to admit that if that were the case. But I would say, you know, let's revisit this in six months, see how things go. We might be surprised. Who knows? Moving on to episode 12, this is going to be another lengthy one, so buckle up for a little bit. So, the most recent conversation with any degree of exposure on social media and otherwise to come up about the objective review concept came from a website dubbed The Daily Crate, which is Loot Crate's own version of a games journalism site, essentially. One of the leads there, uh, Candace Shane, wrote an op-ed that essentially explained that we need to return to the days of factual reviews and utilize terms like virtue signaling and grief counseling as derogatory descriptors against other reviewers while avoiding directly naming anything that she disagreed with, working as sort of a these are sites that I don't agree with without specifically naming any example. It was a very weird piece, if I'm being honest. It, it kind of sort of felt like the sort of thing penny arcade was rallying against when talking about you know journalism majors who desperately wanted to use all of their big words and their big phrases in video game reviews so they would turn you know a discussion on doom into a secondary discussion on fracking or whatever by which i mean there were some very needlessly descriptive terms utilized here as an example when referring to the website Polygon, Shane utilizes the term angels dressed like commoners, which is a fairly unsubtle reference to the biblical story of Sodom and Gomorrah, which is just weird, right? Like, that's not just me who's looking at that and going, really? It's very, just very over the top in a lot of respects, I think. I mean, maybe that's just me, but that just seems a bit much... There was also a question presented of when is the last time you read a clean-cut piece-by-piece review from any popular news site and felt you only got what you needed, which was interesting because it kind of assumes that the only thing that the reader needs is an understanding of how a game works under the hood and that the reader might not have an interest in contextual discussions. Like, I'm not even sure that there are all that many non-sports-based games that hold up to that sort of scrutiny. Like, I mean, here's an example. Take a game like Firewatch, or a game like Her Story. Or, hell, even take DOAX3. These games don't stand up to technical discussions exclusively because there's more there than just the technical aspect of it. Like, if all you're going to talk about from the technical perspective of Firewatch is... This game looks this way. This game sounds this way. Here's the core play mechanics. It, it's, that's not a very interesting-sounding game. And for somebody who is only interested in the mechanics of that game, you know, maybe Firewatch isn't the game for you. But it is worth noting that there is context that needs to be discussed there. A game like Firewatch stands up more on its context than on its mechanics, and, like, that's important. Again, going to something like The Walking Dead which was developed by the people who developed Firewatch, just as a general point of reference. Imagine that game from a purely technical discussion perspective. Regardless of what your opinion is on that game, imagine describing The Walking Dead to somebody without delving into the context, only discussing it as if it were a car, or a toaster, or a microwave. That doesn't really sound like a very interesting game, does it? You move around and occasionally investigate things, watch as people talk, and occasionally play an active time event. It's, context is, a, is important. Context is very important. And you can't really put that genie back in the bottle. You can't really review games the way that we did in the 8 and 16-bit days because a game like Super Mario Brothers, where the narrative is literally just, the princess was captured, go save her, doesn't really exist in as many games as it used to. And again, this is important. Games have evolved. Our criticisms need to as well. You can't just bring out these concepts and say, well, the reviews that we had back in the 80s were perfectly serviceable. Why can't we keep writing those reviews forever without eventually acknowledging that, well, games are more complicated than they were back in the 80s. We need reviews that are more complicated. Now, to be clear, I do want to make it known I do not think that Every gaming outlet is necessarily handling this in the best way possible as it relates to conveying interesting or worthwhile concepts within the confines of their particular criticism. And there are more than a few people who are kind of playing into the jokey observations that people have made about content criticism, artistic criticism, and so on, as it relates to the new form of criticism and what it should be. For those who don't really pay attention to this sort of thing, there was a primary example that was published on Vice uh, back at the end of September of this year on Forza Horizon 3 titled, Forza Horizon 3 Depicts a Better Australia Than Australians Deserve, which was very much the sort of article that kind of sort of negatively portrays what gaming journalism can potentially be. Like, it's, it's... very windy, it's very self-absorbed, and the specific conversation, such as it is, is very bizarre, such as it goes. To put it into a simple perspective, there are definitely reviews that exist that are bad. There are definitely perspectives that exist that are not necessarily particularly well-researched or particularly well-qualified. This is not new. There are people on all sides of the fucking conversation who are just saying terrible and dumb things that nobody should be listening to. And for the most part, it is really, 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 really worth noting that no matter what your particular belief in this discussion is, there are people on your side and on the opposition side who are just saying dumb things. But we can't use those as an example of everything that is wrong everywhere. Yes, one person on Vice wrote an article that was basically trashing Australia using the veneer of Forza Horizon 3 as a framing device for that. And that's not necessarily helpful for anyone, but that's one person. To discount all of the good work that's being done by people who are both trying to write more technically-minded reviews and more critically-minded reviews is not helpful to anyone. That having been said, I, I should note that uh, I did actually comment on this article, and I made the mistake of making it a point to observe that the language that this person was using had been co-opted by others and kind of sort of was not the sort of language that they should really be using to get their point across because it kind of felt like this person was presenting things from a very specific perspective and a very specific worldview that isn't really going to present them as doing anything but preaching to a very specific subset of gamers. And of course, as you would expect, the only response that I got in any way, shape, or form about my particular comment was being critical of the fact that I made that observation. So if there's any lesson that you can learn from all of this, it is just don't comment on things in general. Because when I tried to clarify my position, um, one of the commenters then informed me that I was autistic for writing a long comment. Really. So, just to clarify here, if you write long comments on the internet that attempt to explain your points thoughtfully and from a position of consideration, you are autistic. But if you just attempt to get your ideas out there, people will latch on to the one that is the most concerning to them at the moment and ignore every fucking thing else whether it's relevant or worthwhile or not in favor of just calling you an asshole for the one thing that you've said just don't comment just don't comment in general that is the one lesson I have learned here anyway moving on the only thing I really want to say about podcast episode 13 was that Mr. Sean Madsen who for longtime listeners is the owner operator runner of the Die Hard Gamecast. When he listened to our podcast back, he he made the point that the audio quality difference was extremely noticeable when listening to himself on that podcast versus the DHGF podcasts, which I thought was interesting as it kind of reinforces that, you know, local audio recording is probably the way to go with this sort of thing. Just a fun anecdote. I don't really have anything particular to contribute, except possibly for the fact that during the Persona 5 live stream... It was mentioned by others, hey, is there going to be any content editing, to which the Atlas representative responded, did you not see that guy get his fucking face ripped off? So, guessing the answer is going to be no there. Who knows? Moving on. One thing I did want to mention about the Switch episode that I thought was particularly interesting was that, after the fact, Laura Kate Dale who I did mention had been delving into various pieces of news and information about the switch mentioned the current information that she has gleaned price point wise on the switch puts it at a price point of roughly 199 to 249 pounds or 249 to $299 based on the fact that there will be two different launch versions, which is in line with the hypothesis that I had made during that particular podcast. And, decidedly puts it in price-wise in the general range of the Wii and the Vita when they launched. I don't really have anything to add to that one way or the other, except that I'm going to be interested to see how the market perceives this new console relative to that price point. If they can pitch it as a home console that has the ability to go portable when needed, that might help them quite a bit. If people infer from that that it's a portable console that you can play on their your TV, on the other hand, I think it's going to die the same kind of death that that the Vita has—slow and painful, and just not particularly interesting to anybody except the most diehard fan base. Ultimately, right now, we should most be concerned about the announcements that will be made in January, closer to the launch date, because it will be interesting to see how. People outside of the core fan base react to this news and how the general public goes with it. But it's, it's going to be an interesting couple of months for the Switch, regardless. And finally, as sort of a callback to episode 19, one point I do want to mention that Mr. Aaron Royce brought up to me after the fact was that he felt that the current trajectory of the Hatsune Miku Project Diva series was mildly concerning from his perspective just because we've already received Project Diva X this calendar year 2016 as well as the VR application that was just released recently. And we will be receiving Future Tone, according to current projections, on January 10, 2017, which is fairly close in proximity release-wise, which he felt was slightly concerning. It's also worth noting that Future Tone in and of itself is designed in a way that it will allow for an extensive amount of songs from the Project Evil library. The current estimation, as I've found on Silicon Era, comes to about 224 songs, which, Jesus Christ. And the product, by all indications, appears as though it will allow for downloadable content into a free-of-charge front-end that you can download download at no cost on the PlayStation Store. I'm not 100% certain how the retail packages are going to work out, but from a timeliness perspective, that does come across as fairly close and does kind of look not so great for the Project Diva series insofar as oversaturation goes, considering that this is going to be the third product in less than a year with the Hatsune Miku name attached to it. So that's iffy. I do want to note that I do still feel as though this is not as bad as products like Dance Dance Revolution and Guitar Hero and Rock Band behaved during their heydays but it does kind of show that it is possible that Sega is perhaps treading down a rocky road in so far as their treatment of the series goes and I'm hoping that we will have a decent amount of delay between the release of Future Tone and the next Hatsune Miku property, whatever it might be, I'm not 100% certain what Sega's endgame is at this point, but it is also worth noting that I don't see a large amount of properties being scheduled for release in the coming calendar year in Japan or in the U.S., so it is very possible that Future Tone may be the last game for a while, and they're just trying to catch up to the Japanese releases. And it is also worth noting, at the very least, that outside of this three applications in a single year-long time period release schedule, the U.S. hasn't been inundated with Miku Games up to this point. So I am, at the least, somewhat hopeful that this is just kind of a one-off thing and that Sega will return to the once-a-calendar-year release schedule that they have been keeping the games to up to this point. I mean, for all I know, we may see three more games come out in 2017, and I may be completely off about this, and whatever, Sega may have completely screwed themselves on it. But for the most part, it is worth noting that we are in a position right now where there might be room for concern, but I kind of just want to let it play out and see where it goes. Beyond that, I don't really have anything else to say insofar as recapping the podcast goes. But I do want to take a moment for those of you who have listened all the way through up to this point just to say thank you. Your support up to this point has been fantastic. All of your retweets, all of your, you know, likes and reposts on Facebook, all of the kind words, all of the criticisms, all of the recommendations that everybody has made have been very helpful and very useful, and I do very much appreciate it. For those of you who have recommended the podcast to friends, who have recommended the podcast to family, who have just spread the word. It has been immensely helpful, and I could not do this without your support, your assistance, and all of the work that you have put in to get the word out and tell others about what we're doing here. I also want to say just a big, big, big thank you to all of the guests that we have had on the podcast up to this point. Uh, Aaron Royce, Jay Rose, Guy Demare, John Widrow, Matt Yeager, Michael Kennedy, Robert Hubbs, Greg Johnson, Zeke Ryden, Gamer Keith, Crystal Steltonpole, Sean Madsen, Josh Moore, Jack Keishas, Lola Mendoza, Alex Lucard, Joe Tran, and Nick Tricombe. Thank you very much for being on the podcast. Thank you very much for those who have already agreed to do additional recordings when the time comes. Just thank you for your support. Thank you for your assistance. Just thank you, thank you, thank you. I did not expect anywhere near the amount of support from friends, from strangers, that I have gotten for the podcast since its debut. The initial release back in July 15th feels like a lifetime ago at this point, but we have made great strides in terms of getting the word out, getting people listening, getting people subscribed, and I really do appreciate it, and just... I am eternally grateful to everyone who has been a part of this, whether it be recording, telling others, what have you. Just, I am in your debt. But, that wraps up the recap episode. Join us next week when we will have something a little bit more substantial for you to chew on, I'm sure. I don't have a a jokey join us next week thing at this point, because again, this is just kind of a rumination on what has gone on in the first 20 episodes sort of thing. So, but, if you did listen all the way up to this point, whether you're brand new or whether you're somebody who's been a long-time listener, if you like what you heard and you want to get the word out, what have you, just make sure that you like, subscribe, and comment. You can access the podcast on SoundCloud over at soundcloud.com slash You can find us on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, and basically anywhere where podcasts are hosted. I also upload video versions of the podcast on YouTube so you can just search for neo kobe pizza or you can head over to my youtube channel at markbwriting and take a look at everything from there if you want to follow along on social media you can follow me over at twitter at markbwriting or on facebook at markbwriting home you can also follow along with my writing work over at diehardgamefan.com and markbwriting.com i know but it, it's a brand so i'm just going to stick it on fucking everything but in any case Just check back with us next week, where we should have a more substantial topic to jump into and talk about, and I should have an actual guest along with me. And once again, let me just say, this is Mark B. Writing saying, stay safe out there, junkers.